what are you searching for? What are you using your time and energy and efforts to find, to attain? When I think of the word search, um, I may not be the deepest, most contemplative person in the world, so one of the first things that come to my mind, comes to my mind is Google search. What are people searching for? So you might be interested to hear. Internationally, here are the five top things that were the subjects of Google searches in this calendar year, 2018. Number one, the World Cup. Number two, Avicii. I didn't know who that was. I'll tell you in a moment. Number three, Mac Miller. I didn't know who that was. I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. Stan Lee. I did know who he was. He was a cartoonist, a creator of superheroes, and he passed away. And then finally, Black Panther, a movie that gripped the whole world. The two that I had never heard of were musicians, rappers, and DJs who had taken their own lives. So now, Google search in America. What are the five top searches for Google search for we who are Americans? We are searching for information about, number one, the World Cup. Okay, so we share that with the world. Number two, the world was not as concerned about this as we were. Hurricane Florence, massive hurricane, and it hit the East Coast. And then number three, number four, number five, it's stunning to me, but again, this theme, Mac Miller, the rapper who took his own life, Kate Spade, a designer who took her own life, and Anthony Bourdain, a world traveler and chef who took his own life. What are we searching for? Information, answers. We use time and energy and effort and expense to search for things. Everyone does this, 24 seven we do this. You know you don't, you're not even able to shut down this function of your, of your, of your humanity when you fall asleep. That's what dreams are. Your conscience, your subconscious continues to search, to search. What are we looking for? We have this gift of a chapter in the Bible that we've had read for us today, Job chapter 28. And if you remember nothing else from this sermon, I just simply want to make sure today that you know this particular chapter has been given to you as a gift, as a diamond. If you remember nothing else from the sermon, I want you to just remember Job 28 is a resource for you for the rest of your life. Make use of this chapter. It's a chapter different than all other chapters. God gives us 66 books in his scriptures. The books that are termed the wisdom books, Job is the longest of the wisdom books. And the author of the book of Job, who is not Job himself, he's telling the story of Job. 
and he inserts himself in an entirely appropriate way as the author by writing a prologue and by writing an epilogue. And everything else in between is dialogue between Job and his three friends that show up, and then Job and a fourth friend, Elihu, who shows up, and then Job and God himself. The author of this book gives us a prologue and an epilogue, but he also inserts himself in an entirely appropriate way to give us this hinge chapter. Chapter 28 is, are not the words of any of the characters in this story. They are the author's words. They are the words that summarize all that's come before in the first 27 chapters and foreshadow all that will come afterwards. There's a reason why the three friends that come and speak with Job, and let me pause for a moment. I'm sorry to just dive right in. Let me just remind us of the book of Job, the basic plot and story. Job was a righteous man who lost everything. And he's not aware of the fact that the devil was the one who had sought Job out in particular to destroy. The Lord had told the devil about this righteous servant of his. And the devil says, no one worships you genuinely from the heart. And you might remember what little we know about the devil from the scriptures is that he was created upright, an angel by God, but then fell into wicked evil. He, this the heart of evil cannot contemplate the idea of a created being actually worshiping its creator. And so he says, well, I grant the point, Lord, that this Job goes through the motions of worshiping you and looking like he's a righteous man, but he only does that because his life is so awesome. You've given him so much a remarkable wife and so many children and riches beyond compare. That's the only reason he worships you. And so the Lord turns Job over to Satan. He won't let Satan touch Job's soul, but he will let Satan touch everything that is ephemeral, everything that is temporary in Job's life, including his own health. And he loses everything. He loses his children. And this dialogue ensues between him and his friends. But those three friends, as you come to, as the book makes clearer and clearer with each passing chapter, something seems okay and then a little bit off. And then by the time they're done talking, you realize these guys are just jerks. And they are explicitly rebuked by God himself at the end of the book. But after chapter 28, a fourth friend shows up, Elihu, who also dialogues with Job. And he is not rebuked by the Lord. He is, as it were, a John the Baptist character, whose words, he himself is not the Lord, 
He himself is not wisdom, but his words are a foreshadowing and a preparation. He prepares the way so that when the Lord comes and speaks to Job, Job's heart was prepared enough to be able to receive it. But all of this drama of this book, the story itself is dramatic enough, but the author, in his way of telling the story, shows this literary art beyond compare. And so he uses chapter 28 as like a a bonsai plant, a a beautiful, huge, glorious tree in miniature. All of wisdom summed up in this one chapter, as it were. So let's look at this chapter. Let's look at it for a few details here. And we want to see now as we move through this chapter and, and what it has to say to us. We want to look at it with under five headings. Or let me say, actually, just six headings, because here's the first is the heart of what Job 28 is trying to teach. If you were able to, to uh, read along or listen well to the chapter as it was read for us, you would have seen that uh, verses 12 and verses 20, they repeat each other. That they are, they're sort of a chorus. They're the summary. At the heart of this chapter is the question, where shall wisdom be found? There it is in verse 12. There it is again in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? Now, I received in my uh, Christmas stocking a magnet, um, maybe a refrigerator magnet or a magnet for a locker or something, but, um, and it really helps to get, to get to what we're getting at here. So that, here's what the magnet says. Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. That gets at this, what Job's talking about, very helpfully. That there really is a distinction. Everybody knows it if you just stop and pause. There's a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. There's a distinction between the acquisition of knowledge in these beautiful buildings that we can see just by looking out the windows of our church. One of the leading business schools in the whole country, the scientific research happening, the acquisition of knowledge that we all desperately need. We need more knowledge. I needed someone to have the knowledge to translate Job's original Hebrew into English so I could make some sense of it. We need the acquisition of knowledge. And in this chapter, there is no denigration whatsoever of all the efforts being gone to to acquire gold and silver. But what the chapter is getting at is that it's not enough. Everyone gets it. Even refrigerator magnets understand. The acquisition of knowledge is not enough. We're never going to denigrate the acquisition of knowledge. Yogi Berra brilliant philosopher, said, life is hard. It's harder if you're stupid. (laughs) We need to acquire knowledge, but everyone knows. 
even Cracker Barrels that sell refrigerator magnets or whatever. Everybody knows that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is not enough. We also need to acquire wisdom. And where can you find it? Where? Where can it be found? Where can you acquire business acumen? I see a building. Where can you see, acquire scientific research expertise? I see another building. Where can you find wisdom? Where? This is what Job chapter 20 asks ask us over and over. So, in this new year, where are you going to find wisdom? Where are you going to find wisdom? I hope you have some sense of where you're going to go to acquire the knowledge that you'll need in this new year. If you're in school, you'll go back to that school. If you're in in industry or in business, you'll acquire continuing education. I hope you have some plans ahead for where you're going to go in this new year to acquire the ongoing knowledge you'll need, the new skills you'll need. Where are you going to go to acquire wisdom? Well, we know the answer, and you've already answered the answer, answered the question for yourselves by coming here. And you've been living your lives in such a way as you're displaying that you know the answer is found in Christ. Christ is wisdom. But this chapter helps us to see that as simple as that is, Our hearts mess it up. Our hearts mess it up all the time. So here's the next point we're trying to make. The first point was just trying to sum up that at the heart of the book of Job, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And now we're trying to see that this wisdom, our third point essentially is, This wisdom is found in Christ. But now we're trying to also see these barriers, these problems that our own hearts create that keep us from acquiring wisdom. I don't know if any of you had a chance to get here early enough or whatever to to read the the meditation in the bulletin. It's an excerpt from the great, um, great novel, The Moviegoer by Walker Percy which won the National Book Award. And I won't read that for you now, but um, you'll see there that Percy is giving voice to this idea that the search is something that should come very naturally to any of us. This search for wisdom, this search for true understanding, that that's just should come as naturally to a person as waking up and saying, I need to find where my next meal is going to come. And yet, no one seems to be searching. What is happening? What is this problem of self-satisfaction where you believe you already have all the wisdom you'll ever need? And when we know that in Christ is found all wisdom, the problem looks like this. I already have all the Christ I'll ever need. My knowledge of him is sufficient to me as is. One of the early things I learned uh, from the seventh grade English class was about the difference between a 
a dynamic character and a static character. A dynamic character is a character that changes throughout the story. A static character stays the same. There is wonderful good news that God is unchanging and unchangeable. But there is no sense in which your knowledge of him needs to remain static. There's something wrong with the heart that is satisfied with the amount of knowledge of God we have already attained. And there's something beautiful and healthy about the heart that's constantly searching for more of God's wisdom found in Christ. So Percy is trying to give voice to this sort of self-satisfaction. Soren Kierkegaard had a whole treatise called Against indifference. Summing up all of a man's problems with that one word, indifference. In, a, in Percy's second novel, he, the, the Last Gentleman, he has this scene where one of the characters who is a, a believer in Christ and she's given her life... Um, to serve the poor. And her younger brother is dying of a terminal illness, and he's in the hospital in his last days of life. And her religious devotion had taken her away from the family, so she hadn't been with her brother for several years. She comes back now to visit him in the hospital as he's dying. And she's, she talks about that conversation afterwards with the main character, in, in, who's named Will Barrett. And she says, It is curious, Mr. Barrett, but what I told him, and we had seen she had just gone through the, the gospel of Christ with him, that he need not fear death, because Christ, who is wisdom, has come to earth take on all our sins and to conquer death and to provide him forgiveness and a new heaven, a new earth, and a new resurrected body. She had just gone through that and now she comes and talks with the main character about what the conversation had been like and this is what she says. She says, it is curious, Mr. Barrett, but what I told my brother was absolutely the last thing on earth he would listen to. It was not simply one of a great number of things he might have listened to more or less indifferently. It was, of all things, absolutely the last thing. Doesn't that strike you as strange? If, if that's not clear enough for you, what the point Percy is trying to make there about something is so wrong with our hearts... Pascal makes it a little bit even uh, more explicit. Let's see if I can find this quote here. Pascal says more directly, when we wish to think of God, is there not something which distracts us and tempts us to think of something else? Yes. And all of that is evil and innate in us. The barriers that keep you from seeking with all your heart after Christ 
are found within your own heart. Our own hearts are resistant and complacent and indifferent. What are we going to seek for in this new year? And is it going to be wisdom? Here's the whole point of what Job 28 is saying. It is trying to, the the chapter is trying to commend to us this idea of seeking all of our hearts after wisdom. And it doesn't do that by saying, look at all the energies and efforts man will go to. They use their creativity to figure out ways to to build shafts like pre-technology and to dam up rivers. Look at all the energies they go to to acquire gold. That's stupid. Do something better. That's not what the chapter is saying. The chapter is saying is, look at all the energies man goes to to acquire things that they know to be valuable. Because in this life, the possession of gold is very helpful. I'm glad we can pay the bills and have heat and light today. It's important that we had the money to do that. Job 28 is saying, look at all the energy and efforts a person will go to to acquire something that's valuable. The reason why we don't do that for wisdom, verse 13, man does not know its worth. There's something inside us that resists this idea that we need wisdom from above, that we need wisdom from outside of ourselves. If we knew how valuable wisdom was, Job 28 is saying, look at all the efforts they go to to get gold, we'd be doing that too, even more so to acquire wisdom, if we knew it was valuable. So now we come to the heart of the whole scriptures and the heart of the sermon. And by heart, don't get your hopes up too much. That means we're about in the middle at least logically speaking, not necessarily time, but logically we're in the middle now, the heart of the sermon, that when Christ came to earth, he embodied and fulfilled all of the signs and foreshadowings that had been in the whole Old Testament scriptures, including this need for wisdom. And we see that verse in Corinthians. It's, it's there in the takeaway summed up for you in the, the, the takeaway summary of the sermon. That in Corinthians, we learn that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The degree to which the acquisition of wisdom remains esoteric and general and vague is the degree to which we'll probably be indifferent about seeking it. But the degree to which we see that wisdom is found in the person of Christ, this personal relationship with the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to the degree to which we see that the acquisition of wisdom is the deepening of a relationship with a Savior who loves you That's the degree to which we will seek it with all of our heart and energy. Three final points now. This Christ, 
who we've come to now. We, we see he is wisdom. We see in the hymns we've sung already this morning and all the stories that, that we've been re, uh, re- reminding ourselves of during the Christmas season, of all the prophecies that this Christ would come, and now he's here, and so we come to this Christ. And now we see that this Christ, who we are now in relationship with us, who's in relationship with us now, does not want our relationship to remain static and boring and flatlined. It's dynamic. And so that's why he says, and we had the New Testament reading, Matthew 7, that's why he says, here's what the Christian life looks like. It looks like asking and seeking and knocking continually in an ongoing way. Christ says, I know that the degree to which you have knowledge of me to this point in your life has been sufficient, but I know that you'll need more of me in this new year. And so keep asking and seeking and knocking, and Jesus then gives us the promise that if you do so, you will find. He who seeks, finds. You might remember the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door bring about a, a new reformation and, and renewal of good news in the Christian church. And the first of those was when Christ commands us to repent, he meant for the whole of the Christian life to be one of repentance. This ongoing asking and seeking and knocking where we are coming to him with our true hearts and giving those hearts over to him, and letting him fill us now with new nuances of his character, new themes from Scripture that we hadn't seen before, themes from Scripture that we had seen before, but we had forgotten about, and they'd been on the back burner. We come to Christ, and he renews us in our knowledge of him. This is why... The last verse of Job 28 gives us this answer. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. And so we come to Christ and we continue to ask and seek and knock. We're not satisfied with the wonderful richness with which he fed us yesterday but that was yesterday's manna, and it doesn't suffice for today or for tomorrow. We come to him today for today's manna, and we come to him tomorrow for tomorrow's manna. And he's always there answering yes and amen. He who seeks finds. So we seek. I was listening to Craig Lucan's sermon a couple weeks ago from Ezekiel 34, and it was just so perfect for this whole idea, because the main character, the main seeker in Ezekiel 34 is not men trying to acquire wisdom men trying to acquire gold, 
Israel seeking after God, the main seeker in Ezekiel 34 is God himself seeking us. And so here's how we reframe the whole idea of seeking, is that we ask and we seek and we knock and we keep seeking until we find the seeker. We love him because he first loved us. He is initiating. He has always initiated. You have been written on his heart. You've been the apple of his eye from before you were born. He has had you in mind. And he has a secret name prepared for you in heaven. Some new name he's going to give you. This intimate relationship he's had with, he has had with you precedes your conscious awareness of it and is still present whenever we lose conscious awareness of his presence. This seeker is the one that we find when we seek. We find the very heart of God for us. As a very young man, uh, Jonathan Edwards, an early I was going to say Presbyterian, but he never quite became a Presbyterian. He was a Congregationalist minister in New England. As a young man, he made a set of resolutions, and one of those resolutions was particularly profound, where he said, I will not consider, resolved, 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 I will not consider it to be Christian confession of sin until I receive forgiveness. And he also says, resolved. I will not consider it to be Christian prayer until I receive God's answer. That there's no such thing as a person seeking after the heart of God that God then is indifferent towards. There may be a period of silence where your particular answers, questions are not being answered. But he is by no means silent during that period. He is speaking to you grace in a thousand other ways. And so it's not Christian seeking until you know you found the seeker. You found the heart of God. That you come and you don't find a nondescript God Oh, I've got a relationship with God. Well, who is he? I don't really... No, you found the seeker. You found a God who has loved you from all eternity. You, you find the heart of a God who provides for you a true and lasting forgiveness of sins. You know you're really seeking the true God when you find not only his love for you and true forgiveness for your sins, but you find that he really is the giver of all good gifts. He's the source of everything good, true, and beautiful. As Hebrews 11 says, apart from faith, we can't please God. It's not Christian faith to just go through the motions. And then it defines faith in a few ways, and one of those ways is the heart of faith must believe that God rewards those who seek him. 
Christian knows that when Christ says, he who seeks will find, that Christ wasn't lying or playing the long con with you. That you do find. You do. And what do you find? You may not find the particular answers for the angst that you're going through in that moment. Or the particular right buyer for your house, which is still in the market after 18 months. But you will find this God speaking grace and love to you. The giver of good gifts who is rewarding you with more of his presence. And so it all comes down to this final point here. That Jesus is... Well, this doesn't work as a saying. I thought it did. It's really not... It doesn't work at all. Whatever. I'll just say it anyway. Jesus' first name, his middle name, and his last name. The Christian life from beginning to end is all about grace. Grace is what distinguishes the seeking. That all the world is seeking after things. All the world is seeking after answers for why would a person successful take his own life? How is my team going to do in the biggest worldwide athletic event in the whole world? The whole world seeking after things and maybe even finding in a way that brings them contentment that's temporal and ephemeral and it won't last. The way you know you have found the real God is when you find grace. Not just some other version of you earned your place. You did it. By your hard work and your efforts, you found me. That's just some other false God. The way you know you found the real God At the very heart of Jesus' character and name is this idea of grace. And here is where we see the beauty, the the wonderful turn. Because we talked earlier about this resistance to seeking wisdom, that we'll seek everything else. That when someone says to us and speaks the gospel, sometimes it's the very last thing we want to hear. There's this inner resistance to this idea that we need help outside of ourselves. And so that's summed up for us in the book of Romans, which says in chapter 3 that the heart is so dead that, it, that no one seeks God. No one. There's no exception to that. No one in our fallen nature, in our own initiative, with our own resources, seeks God. But then the wonderful twist comes. Because just a few chapters later in the book of Romans, Paul says, ah, but remember this, and he quotes the Old Testament, God said, Romans 10, verse 20, God has always said, I have been found by those who did not seek for me. I have been found by those who did not seek for me. I came and found you and persuaded you that I am the source of everything good and true and beautiful and your only hope for forgiveness. And I came and found you and persuaded you and you were found by me, though you were not seeking me. Brothers and sisters, in this new year, this gift that God has given us, stay on the same path that has brought you to where you are today. You, by definition, have been a seeker 
and finder of wisdom if you are a member of Christ's church. And if you're not a, yet a member of his church, you are on the way. You are showing this great wisdom that this is the place where wisdom can be found. And we want to help you understand that you can receive that in your own awareness. And if I were to run outside and be called by God to preach on a street corner five minutes from now, I'd be preaching to a whole different audience. I'd be trying to persuade people that in Christ is the only answer for wisdom. You've been persuaded of that. What has brought you to this path? Stay on that path. If you feel like you've lost God, it's just like you lose something walking in the woods. Go back to the last place you knew you had it and start looking around. If this God, if it's true, if it's all true, all this grace is true, that he's constantly knocking on the door of your heart. He's constantly inviting you in. He's not silent. He's speaking grace and truth. Again, he might be silent about particular issues, but he's not silent about his love and his, his forgiveness for you. If you're not hearing that, if you're not hearing that knock, you might need to find your own heart first, your own heart you've allowed to be dead any sort of love and outreach towards you. This is what Christian friendship and Christian counseling is helpful for. You must find where your heart is in order to hear him knocking on the door of your own heart. But you can find him in this new year by maintaining the same wise paths you've, you've taken to this point. There's no new insights for 2019 besides the classic ways to find God that the church has always known. In his word, in fellowship with him in prayer, in fellowship with each other as Christians, and in your baptism and the Lord's Supper. Even if you go through the motions and taking the Lord's Supper in a few moments from now, if, you're, if, if you are simply going through the motions, Christ is present, loving you and feeding you in ways that you might not even feel because of grace. But don't go through the motions to the degree to which you allow your own heart to actually be engaged. You'll be feeling the feeding, the renewal of God's love for you. You'll be seeking after him and finding him. Let's pray. We, we know, O oh Lord, that as Job 28 teaches, this wisdom, it simply cannot be found in the land of the living. The only ones that have even heard a rumor of it in this life are Abaddon and death. The awareness of death is the only thing that gives us an approach to being able to find wisdom. And so we know and we agree with this chapter, this powerful chapter, that you and you alone are the source of all wisdom. And we praise you and we thank you that now Christ has come, the personification, the embodiment. He has become, he has come and he has become wisdom for us. Shape our hearts all year long, O oh Lord, that we would be seekers after goodness and truth and beauty, that we'd be seekers after the wisdom that we will need in this challenging new year. We praise you and we thank you for all the wisdom you've given us to this point in our lives that have brought us to this point, but we will need fresh manna today and tomorrow and all year 
And we ask you for it. And we look to it, look to you expectantly as your children, as your sons and daughters. In the name of Jesus, we pray.